You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. So today's podcast is with Rob Cross and Karen Dillon. Rob is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, co-founder and director of The Connected Commons, and the author of Beyond Collaboration Overload. Karen is a returning guest to the podcast. She's a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, editorial director at Banyan Global Family Business Advisors, and the co-author of three books with the late, great Clayton Christensen, including the New York Times bestseller, How Will You Measure Your Life? And they've co-written a new book. It's called The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Rob Cross, Karen Dillon, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having us. <laughs> we're, we're so glad to be here, Kelly. Thanks. Uh, The first line in the introduction to your new book is, quote, we didn't set out to write this book, end quote. Okay, I'm going to bite. Rob, what book did you two set out to write? (laughs) So we were were starting down this path of looking at well-being and kind of the positive impact that connections have uh, on our lives. It was literally, I kid you not, the very first interview. uh, These are really in-depth, you know, 90 minutes, super successful people uh, focused on how do connections in our lives affect our health, our our sense of purpose and who we are, our resilience and our growth in and out of our profession. And uh, I had been speaking with this life science executive that, you know, was um, a lovely British accent. I won't, won't try to mimic here. Mm-hmm. And I asked her just, you know, can you tell me about a time in your life when you're becoming more physically healthy? And what did that look like for you? Not in terms of what you were doing, but the role of the connections around you. And she went on to tell a, a fantastic story of becoming somebody that moved from never doing any sort of physical activity, you know, dodge gym in high school, everything she could do to get out of it to suddenly at mid thirties, her, her doctor saying, you have to do some exercise or something not, not good's going to happen. And she would walk around a park, you know, in, in London. She started bumping into people that were walking around that park outside her flat and they walked together and then they walked further. And and ultimately you go forward 10 years on that story. And she was picking uh, vacation destinations with her husband and some of that group where they would run a marathon first, you know, and mm-hmm. then go on a vacation. And um, and so, you know, it was a fantastic story. 45 minutes in, I made the fatal error of saying, well, how did you get stuck in an unhealthy spot? I mean, look at you. You're motivated. You're smart. You're everything. And the interview went from 100 miles a minute to nothing. 
you know, and there's this dead silence and she's looking at me and she said, I don't know, just life, I guess. And, and really it was that moment that, you know, the next 45 minutes we dug in on what are these small moments that are trapping people. And that persisted through hundreds of interviews after that, that what we were seeing was it was the accumulation of small negative moments that was really catastrophic to people in ways that they couldn't see. So we started, you know, and we, we ended looking at the positives too, yeah. uh, the role of the positive side of connections, but we really were shifted to say, understanding and managing the negative interactions in small moments is really critical. Uh, that is such an improv thing in terms of, you know, having the conversation and then sort of listening for what's not there and mm. recognizing, recognizing that moment. So, so comedically, right. We're always like, Oh, let's dig into that. And, and then I think that's where I think our work jives with the academic work. Cause it's a similar thing. It's like, it's right. all problems to be solved. We just do use it to turn it to a laugh. Right. <laughs> and, and you're actually trying right. to find find out what it is, Karen. How did you land on this term, microstress? It just, first of all, we didn't have language to describe what oh. Rob's talking about. These kind of small moments, and and we realized that pretty early on that we don't have the language to talk about it. People don't recognize it because they don't even know how to talk about it. So it just became obvious that these were such tiny moments of stress, but that packed a punch. Both you know immediately and for a second and then went on for secondary and tertiary implications for you too, that microstress just became the right term to describe how brief and how tiny they are individually. These moments may feel silly to talk about. Of course, I can handle that. Of course, you know, getting an email at five o'clock when I'm trying to get out the door that seems complicated and I don't quite follow, you know, everyone has to deal with that. But the problem is you have to deal with dozens of them in a given day. And so they add up to something really significant. So microstress felt like the right unit to start talking about something that we feel, but we didn't have language for. Well, it's funny. To, well, I'm funny is the wrong word. Um, I, I'm curious in terms of, you know, we, we hear the term microaggressions, right, all the time. And I've had this argument with various academics who say that that that's a bad term because it, it doesn't, how can aggression be, be micro? But I think for people who people who've experienced it, they, they, they feel it and they, they sense it. And, and, and it seems to me, too, what you're sort of identifying is, is this thing that we we don't have a word for, um, but it is very real. And and I guess death by a thousand paper cuts would be the longer cliched version of that, right? Right. Yeah. Right. You don't have, you know, almost if you're a successful person, you are conventionally taught, you just overcome these things, right? They, they shouldn't be anything we even talk about, like Karen was saying. And so having that as a, in your radar to say, you know what, there's 20 of these I just got hit with and five of them are driven <laughs> by the same thing. And that we could actually shape that, you know, it, it does open people's eyes a little bit to how to think about, you know, adapting the negatives, you know, and the, the way they're coming at us through connections. Yeah, we, so we do tons of work with business people and my friends all work at jobs and I know very few people who aren't dealing with micro stresses. Hmm. Right. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was one, you know, you talk about something that touches your soul. You do hundreds of these interviews and, you know, you're in conversations with, you know, generally most of us have with maybe four or five people in our lives about the struggles to manage, not just the professional, but the personal and the way these stresses are coming at us through how hyperconnected we are. And so I, I think that was the thing that touched my soul in all of this was kind of you get beneath that 10 minutes in the opening of every interview where everything is rainbows and lollipops, you know, everything is great. <laughs> and you get down into kind of how people are experiencing this. And it's a pretty big deal to, to be thinking about today. 
Karen, one thing I'll add, Kelly, I was going to add that that Rob and I, I think, would both say we recognize micro stress in our own life as we were working on this. That was going to be my question: (laughs) (laughs) is how much me search was involved in this. So it just became, it was really, really, we probably both responded to it because it felt like we too finally had language for something we felt like, and we're both high achievers. You know, this you are too. It's just people who have driven that, uh, that career path, you know, we don't know anything differently. And then suddenly we started realizing, yeah, the way we feel is for a real reason. And it's not silly little things. It's all these things are actually taking a really big toll. So Rob and I became that we've started to practice what we were trying to learn for, we weren't preaching it, but learning from the people who adapted to this better. We really, even throughout the course of working on this book, we tried, and which was, by the way, in the middle of the pandemic was a lot of the writing process. Mm-hmm. We we really relied on some of the things that we were identifying to identify in our own lives and then try to find some of the kind of antidotes to that for us to, to do this as well. It's funny. So I've done this podcast now for about five years or so. And, uh, and, and so I read a couple of books a week and many of those are business books. And it's interesting when certain research just because like five years ago, uh, every other book mentioned Carol Dweck and growth mindset. Uh, and then every other book mentioned uh, psychological safety and a- Amy Edmondson. And recently the name that keeps coming up is Lisa Feldman Barrett and Northwestern and this idea around body budget. Uh, and, and, and I'm not even, and this is actually not just business books. These are, you know, well, psychology and, and other areas, but can you talk to us about her work? Cause I think it's really interesting. And I think this term body budget is not well known yet, and I think it will be. She's fabulous. She's at Northeastern, by the way. Oh, Northeastern, um, which thank is, you. Which is close, close to close to me here. Um, yep. She's really fabulous, and I think she definitely needs to get more attention. She's a really great TED talk. I can recommend to people about the body budgeting. But she basically explains how our system is always trying to um, regulate our metabolism, and not just not just meaning the calories we eat and what happens to that, but all of our body systems, and that we have a body budget that can be depleted by various forms of stress, but including micro stress. And so she's a great analogy. She has a really great book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, which mm-hmm. I also recommend to people. She has a really great analogy about how stress really gets it eats away at our body budget is imagine you have kids jumping on a bed and the bed may be able to take one, two, three, you know, 10 kids fine. It's beds holding fine. Those are all the sort of small stresses of our life. But somehow the 11th kid is just one too many and the bed breaks. That's what micro stress does to us. It's it, they're, they're layering kids onto our mental bed. And then at the 11th one, it just breaks. And so our body budget is just constantly trying to regulate our metabolism for all our systems. And that's stress and micro stress in particular stresses our body budget. It depletes our body budget. So we're more vulnerable to the phys- physical effects of that stress. It, it, uh, let's and, and Rob, I want to ask you about this. Uh, you talk about a common micro stress, uh, stress that uh, we don't actually stop to think about, and that's the well-intentioned boss, client, or stakeholder who seems to constantly be slightly altering what they're mm-hmm. asking of you. Yeah, I mean, this this feels like a deep cut, and and <laughs> and, um, and and one that when I thought about, it, I'm like, oh my god, you're right. I don't think about that, but what? So to, to talk talk more about that. Sure, I think sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it tends to take, you know, one of three forms or, or maybe a couple of those. One is uh, shifts in the what of the work. You know, people aren't clear on exactly what needs to get done and they're just adapting it slightly or they have this great idea at night that they kind of cascade down. Uh, shifts in what the performance outcome is um, and, and what is being required either timeline wise or things like that. 
or just emotionally showing up different, right? From point A to point B. And what's interesting is most people have had that experience and they go, oh my gosh, that stinks, right? <laughs> I don't, you know, don't enjoy that at all. What we often miss that's really embedded in how hyper-connected we are today and how we're interacting so much with different people is it's not just the direct effect a lot of times, but a secondary effect too. Uh, and that, you know, you may end up having to go back and shield your team. Right. If there's been a big increase yeah. in the ask or they're not happy with the outcome and you're suddenly building your team back up in certain ways. Or if you're going down a certain trajectory and you've had to negotiate alliances with three or four other people to help you deliver on something and suddenly all that's not relevant, it doesn't mean that you're probably not stuck helping those people on what you committed to. Right. And so suddenly you've got an extra tax there and then maybe having to find new uh, alliances to kind of deliver on things. So that was, again, one of the more interesting things is they all tend to have an initial impact, but then there's oftentimes a secondary effect um, that happens as well with these micro stresses, again, because of how, you know, hyper-connected our, our world of work and life is today. So one of the things we talk about in our work, which shows up in your book, is um, we talk to young improvisers of uh, fighting the need to be right. Like mm. it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're right. And you talk mm. a bit about that in the, in the book, because I mean, you can't, you, you can't control all, all the outcomes. You, you literally have control over one thing and that is your emotional response to events. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I, <laughs> I know that's easier. That's easier said than done, but let, let's talk a little bit about how one might do that. Well, I think um, there's a natural tendency, and I, I've been on three conversations today where this came out, and especially from young people saying, we don't have control of these situations. And they're looking at it in aggregate. You know what I mean? They look at it and say, well, I don't have control of, for example, if there is a shift, this literally came up earlier today. And I'm like, well, you know, one thing you can do is do an impact to effort grid, right? And, and just kind of plot out next time a big ass comes, here's the uh, uh, effort it's going to take and the impact it's going to produce and agree that with your boss and and maybe it shifts a little bit, right? Or just agree a language with your boss that says, is this a 10, a seven, a two, a one? Did you just have a bad burrito or something at lunch and you've got a new idea and you're trying to, you know, work that out a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and it's amazing how in those small moments, if you start looking at it, not like I've got this crazy boss that's driving me crazy, but you know what, it's these two or three interactions that if I can just pivot on those, um, I can do okay. I think you start to move from that universal um, idea of, you know, do I need to be right? Do I have any, any control in the situation down to actually, we do have a lot of control in smaller moments than I think we, we give ourselves. Um, so that's one of the big things that I was taking away from this is we just give that control up too much and we don't actually shape the context in the ways that we, we can today. Karen, it strikes me too, then this also requires one to be um, maybe telling themselves a different story than, than, you know, it's that sort of idea of personal storytelling. And, and, and like, we, we have a phrase we use here, you need to replace blame with curiosity. Oh, that's great. How can you be curious in this moment? And it, it actually, my friend Liz Joan Sandberg used it on a heckler once. She was doing stand-up and she's like, I'm deciding in this moment not to yell at this person, but be like, figure out why they're doing what they're doing. And, and it became really funny in its own right. Um, but that's, that's a muscle that I think we could use in the workplace as well. It definitely is. And one of the things that we try to 
adapt from the people who did this best in our research is their their ability to again frame things in terms of interactions, as Rob just said, not relationships. It's not a bad relationship because you have some interactions that are creating micro stress for you, but those interactions might be ones that you can change. But also, you just sort of almost quoted Ted Lasso to me, who's Uh quoting I can't remember Walt Whitman. I can't remember the quote is you know be don't be judgmental, be curious. And I think that's really interesting. One of the bits of advice we give people when they're inundated or flooded with extra things to do or things that involve collaborating with other people is it's okay to ask good questions. You can still be a great colleague, a great direct report, a great manager, a great stakeholder if you ask, stop and ask good questions. So it's not about you having to identify as the super achiever, the never let you down, the go-to person, but you can be a person who can frame or shape those interactions and the requests of you by asking good questions. So it's a completely, be curious. That's That's a great way to put it. Be curious because you will do better work and and your colleagues will see you doing better work and you'll collaborate better. All those things will be better if you take a little bit of time to just kind of calibrate yourself there. Yeah. And Rob, I think too, you know, the book that you um, thought you were writing offers some of the solutions, which is people, that that relationships are hugely important. You need to have those relationships at work, at home, you know, in in your life as as a way to manage uh, the inevitable. These are inevitable ups and downs. Right. Right, right. Yeah. So for us, one of the interesting things is um, we had a group of people that that were just exemplars in terms of hitting both performance and life really well. And so we started to call them our 10 percenters. And one of the things that they universally did is they had uh, they were authentically involved in at least two and usually three groups uh, outside of their profession, their direct profession. The stories that ended poorly, uh, you know, way deep into people's lives with just kind of miserable outcomes. They may have been rich, but miserable outcomes on everything else were when it became purely about the profession and direct family, right? And so we really came to see that having this dimensionality in life was important. And what it was, was not the big things that was distinguishing these people. They didn't, they may hike the Himalayas, but that wasn't what was making them happy, right? At the heart of it, it was that they lived the small moments more authentically with others. Um, And so they may look, for example, one of our our great interviews um, focused in on running. She was a tremendous runner, type A personality, came out of one of the best schools ever, top performer, major organization. And she said her mid forties was when she kind of woke up and said, I've been using running the wrong way. Right. I've been running for society's definition of fun and these lists and getting a personal best time and all this other stuff. And she said, what I wanted to do was run with my daughter, her best friend and a parent. And that evolved into this group in a neighborhood that was running. So what she was doing, and again, to this idea of looking at the interactions is things everybody can do is she was taking the same activity she was already doing that same time for running. She was running a little slower, but she was doing it in a way that pulled her into two spheres that created great sense of purpose for her, right? Community and the relationship with her, with her family. And so those kind of pivots and looking for the small moments that create dimensionality uh, in our lives turned out to be one of the really big differentiators for, uh, from, from the positive source of kind of how people, how people do this. That's an interesting, that's a pretty provocative reframe, right? There's the, that, 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 that you pick an activity uh, that you're doing and, and what, whatever you, br- whatever you're bringing to it. I'm trying to think even in, in my own life, whether it, I, it was, so one of the things I know about doing the pod, that was a side, there's a benefit that I didn't recognize was going to be a benefit, which mm-hmm. is, and people are always like, how do you have time to read so much? And I'm like, well, it's my job. And yeah. you recognize that you, you will make yeah. time to do things that, that are, your job if you consider them your job 
and I, and I, and I do. And, and then, and then I have the benefit of, Hey, I'm, I, I read a new book every week. I learn something new every week. I get to have these conversations, which also means I'm kind of completing the learning loop because I've got my notes and then I'm regurgitating the material and trying, trying to understand, understand it. And, um, I mean, there's, there's, that's, I guess, an element of job crafting that I know not everyone has the ability to do, but I suspect that more of us do than, than we let on. Yeah, you think yeah, so? I think yeah. so. Yeah, that's what I was going to. I mean, <laughs> okay. you know, what, let's what talk you about would that see with these people is they would, for example, talk about strategically calendaring, you know, and Friday night or Sunday. Everybody said, oh, I strategically calendar. But usually it's a reactive posture. It's like, how am I going to survive this week? <laughs> you know, I've got all this stuff going on. I'm operationally trying to execute. What I would see that was interesting about these people is they would be looking kind of two months out and saying, you know, what's the work that I want to be doing? How do I start initiating conversations, getting a couple of people involved in that? letting it evolve into a program of work or project, whatever, or it's just interactions that pull me into a different role. And so they were, they were crafting it, but not in the way that we think about a lot of times, you know, they were just creating that future kind of seeding the ideas, pursuing it kind of, you know, following it out there. And they, they enjoyed really rich lives, you know, professionally and, and personally with a strategy that's a, a little bit different, I think, but super, super powerful. I, think I, just would add, I would just add to that because yeah. I think it was really interesting in the research that the people, the people who, there were people who didn't love the job that they were in or had talked about a past experience that they didn't love. And for a lot of people that feels like, okay, I'm at the end of, I hate this job. I have to leave. But what those people that, that were able to persist and do better and navigate their way through micro stress were they sort of identified experiences they wanted to have and, and things they wanted to get better at that they could still find their way to doing in that job. It might be on the path to something else, but they didn't let it crush them. The everyday crush them because they could sort of plot out as Rob was just talking about, okay, so in the next few months, how do I want to get the experience of, you know, learning to do this thing or interacting with these kind of people and who can I learn from? And they were, they were small sort of signposts, but they were things that would allow them to actually not, not, not hate what they were doing every day, gain something from it, and then figure out how it was going to take them to where they wanted to go. But it's reframing as Rob talked about on a different time horizon than the, just get me through. There was an expression I love, just get me through this one week. I've been, but I've been getting me through this one week it for you know months on end yeah um so they didn't think in that same way they thought in the longer term but with smaller kind of guideposts to how they could get there yeah i i always appreciate when people talk about the fact that they you, you rarely are leaving a job you're leaving a bad boss um right. which also is at the heart of the how why relationships are so important because you can in some ways if you've got good people around you you can make a lot of things work and you can you know i often say that meaning is made in moments and if you have a bunch of like positive, good moments with different people, you know, you, you can make a lot of things work. But when you have that sort of toxic individual, and you talk about this in the book that some of your most successful folks have figured out a way that, no, I'm not working with the toxic people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they'll, they'll do it in a couple of different ways. You know, one is to directly address the, the you know, the conflict, right, or what's kind of negative in the interaction. I think they, they um, tend to take approaches that are uh, very improv based. So it's more curiosity for us. Yeah. They go into those conversations and it's like, okay, what is it that I'm doing that's driving this? Then what is it about the context that's creating this? And only later do they get to, here's what you could do differently, mm-hmm. you know, for versus the conventional approaches, you need to stop this <laughs> or whatever it is, right? right. And it's just completely unproductive on all levels. And so again, it's just a slight pivot to, to kind of how you engage that seem to produce very, very different results for those individuals. Uh, Karen, I want to ask you about this because I have, uh, I don't know 
somehow I found myself uh, needing and finding uh, my own truth teller at work. Um, her name's Jenna, and I, I go to her when I need someone to tell me probably a truth that I don't want to hear, um, and it's incredibly useful. Uh, and she's a dear friend and a, a trusted colleague, uh, and you say in, in the book, quote, find your truth tellers. So talk a bit about why that's important. Well, that's, that's, I would put her in the map of your resilience network. One of the things yeah. that we learned from the research that was really fascinating was most of us think about resilience as being, we just have to get ourselves stronger. We just have to steel ourselves to deal with more and more stress and things that are horrible and maybe have people be really empathetic with us. And so we sort of, we sort of think, how much more can I take and have people have sympathy and empathy for us? But what we found were the people who were best at navigating microstress is they actually had what we call a resilience network. They had different people in their lives who played different roles. There were important to helping them build resilience and finding a truth teller, a person who will help you either say, you know, you get two days to wallow and then back in the game, dude, you know, this, Mm -hmm. this is not a big deal. Your life is pretty good. Or a person who will help you find a path forward or a person that will just laugh with you. There are different roles that different people can play in helping you be resilient. And too often, I think too many of us kind of rely on, again, getting stronger quietly um, and one or two people who will just kind of soothe us. Mm -hmm. But that can be a really destructive uh, spiral where you sort of, yeah, yeah, you're right. They don't appreciate me, you know, just in the effort to uh, have empathy, they sort of make it worse for us. So having a range of people is where real resilience comes from. It's a network of people in different roles. And a truth teller is a really important one of those. So for both of you, um, the resilience idea, obviously, I mean, that when, when COVID happened, the very first, um, oh my God, we're all at home and uh, we're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do with all these corporate workshops. And I got a friend, a call from a friend of mine who um, had left exec ed at an Ivy uh, League uh, um, university and was working for a large, she was a learning executive at a soft drink company. And she literally was like, do you have anything on resilience? Like immediately, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, improvisation, of course, is, is, is about that because you're navigating, you know, ambiguity mm-hmm. and you're making something out of nothing with a bunch of other people. Um and I would imagine for both of you, right, we all, and especially because I know all my university friends, I mean, this has not been easy. <laughs> so mm-hmm. my wife's a college teacher, not mm-hmm. easy. Um, mm-hmm. So I, and I don't mean to go back to the me search part, but I am going to a little bit. So was when you were digging into this and, and looking at this, this aspect of resiliency, let me ask this, were you surprised, each of you, were you surprised by anything you learned that like either a, oh, I do this or I should do this? I think I was surprised by where people can get the resilience from. So, you know, we, we, you go through hundreds of interviews like this and you ask people how they make it through a difficult stretch and they could be as, as, you know, small as I didn't get the promotion to managing director the first time. That was the whole thing on Wall Street. Everybody, oh, I didn't make that the first time. It was probably the first setback they had in their lives. And then you get somebody that's really serious. Like my spouse died from pancreatic cancer and I've got two young children. Right. And you're like, wow. Um, and, and then you, you hone in not on what they did to get through, but how they relied on others. And you start to get a whole you know, set of eight, seven to eight, depending on how you parse it, uh, benefits that people get. What's interesting is if you start looking at it that way, then suddenly all of those don't need to come from your significant other right? Or your best friend. Right. And that's one of the things the research has shown is that as the quality of our connections have gone down, we are focusing more of our needs like that to vent, to get empathy into either our parents or our significant other. 
And it's probably putting too much pressure on those relationships. And it's also missing the other ways to get resilience. So Mm -hmm. one of our favorite interviews was a neurosurgeon at one of the best hospitals in the country, very austere, you know, man, brilliant, obviously. And, and he, you know, had said at one point, my life's really devolved to just my profession and my direct family. And I've lost this dimensionality. I see why it matters based on what you're saying. And apparently he went off after the discussions we had and he got a guitar and he, you know, as he was leaving out of the, you know, the music store, he passed by a flyer and it said something like, you know, we're looking for a guitar player. What we lack in quality, we make up for in volume. And he apparently joined this group. I got an email like three months later saying, Rob, I'm in a rock band. And, and, you know, what he was basically saying is he used to play guitar in high school and he used a, pa- a passion from the past to slingshot into a new group. But the important thing was those 20-year-olds were creating resilience for him. He had different perspective on things that really mattered. He unplugged in ways that kind of gave them a different viewpoint on life. And the really key thing is they were never going to be his best friends, right? They were not what we think about with resilience is we got to get empathy from somebody that has known us forever and will always take our side. Um, So what surprised me was that idea of we need to look at it differently and say, how do we create these interactions with different kinds of groups? And you can get all sorts of benefits without having, you know, one or two of these best friends, it takes like 200 hours to create the study show over time. Hmm. Karen, any surprises for you? Yeah, I just, well, I just, I've actually long thought this, but it was sort of nice to see it confirmed. I think resilience is one of the most underdeveloped skills in most people. I think so many of us are used to, you know, so everybody gets a trophy thing, right? We don't, we don't really even have to navigate setbacks, to, you know, too often, especially people who are high achievers, which is why so often when high achievers hit a bump in the road at some later point in their career, so oftentimes they're really derailed by something that, you know, should be navigatable. Um, you know, they get fired or they, you know, get a, they don't get the promotion or whatever. It can really rock them because we're not, we haven't developed those skills. We're so good at just moving forward. But to me, the fact that you could find these various sources of resilience, and it didn't have to be just, you know, the, your ride or die friends, you know, it's great to have those, but mm-hmm. you can find resilience in a former mentor who kind of can help you assess the situation or a current mentor, I guess, can help you assess the situation from a different perspective or being with 20 year olds when you're a 40 year old surgeon, just because it just puts life in perspective. And, and we've all had the thing of, you know, suddenly you're worrying about the little small things in your life that seem so significant to you. And then something really serious happens and everything's put in perspective. Other people can do that for us. So I just think the idea that um, you have to, and, and and you'll benefit from cultivating a resilience network with various types of people that you can make asks of, small asks of. Another great story from our research was a guy who was head of anesthesiology at a major hospital during the pandemic. And in the beginning, they, you know, he and his team had to keep going in, but they literally didn't know if they were putting their lives at risk every day. It was terrifying. And what he talked about, obviously he found some inner strength to get through it. But for him, one of the things that made the big difference were the various people in his personal and professional life who helped him build resilience through that specific stretch. And it wasn't always, you know, telling him how brave he was. It could be as simple as another department had to lend him, you know, an administrative help for a little while. So he didn't have to like worry about scheduling people or or doing whatever, or uh, a boss who just let him kind of debrief at the end of the day. And, you know, second, second, second day quarterback, you know, what they hit, what he had just done, but who was a real ally and trying to get through mm-hmm. difficult situations. So the idea that there's a range of people that we can make asks of that will help us be resilient, I think that's really powerful. And the other thing you note about in the book, which is laughter, 
which is like mm-hmm. this. I mean, let's not underestimate the aspect. Yeah, yeah. Of this. I mean, that saves me here. And you would think a comedy, the- our comedy theater is a lot of drama. Anyone who works here, <laughs> there's a lot of, drama. there's way more crying than you would think would happen at a comedy theater. But, yeah. but that is also offset by the fact that we love to laugh and that that is, yeah. that carries us through the day. And it's not even just when we're doing it, right? It's that, that hearing it down the hallway thing that also is, infectious. Yeah. yeah it, it, it's contagious. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, it's I mean, contagious. It's physiological surprise. too. So sorry, yeah. Rob. It's like no, what, is, do, what is doing to us in a group is actually physiological. You know, it, it is it is not only releasing serotonin, which is a great thing, but it actually is is preventing more cortisol from from the stress hormone from um from being released. So it's physically helpful to you to be laughing with people or even just hearing it down the hallway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, more laughter, more play. Okay, <laughs> so we always end the podcast, uh, and and Rob, I'm going to have you go first because for first time guests. We asked them for a yes hand story. Do you have one for us? I actually was thinking about this, and I think the this work is actually an example of it, you know, mm-hmm. where we came into it, and I had been running a program of work in the consortium studying high performers for some time, and the consortium members were saying, well, we, it'd also be great to understand people that are just happier and thriving in their lives. And, um, and what I don't think I anticipated was that, to find the people doing both well, right, to be able to kind of perform at such a level and... Um, you know, hit hit such great thresholds of living life more richly on their terms. And so I think having the opportunity to understand those people and really think about it in those terms that it's not one or the other, it's not work-life balance, it's an integration of what they're doing um, was uh, was kind of my, the yes and story that came to mind most here. I love it. I heard one of my guests one time said uh, they don't like the term work-life balance, they like work-life sway. Right. right. I'm like, so, I, I think that is actually I way more that, yeah. accurate with what's going on. You need right? a strong inner core to, to handle this kind of, way. Yeah, we're all, we're all kind of moving around where we, where we make it work. All right. So, Karen, returning guest, and Seth Godin did this yesterday for me, uh, was I asked him for a thank you because story. And for those who listen to the podcast kind of know we've done research in this, this area about staying inside a difficult conversation. How do we do it? Can, is by showing gratitude and, and finding anything, no matter how little, uh, that you, that you might connect with, with, with another human being. And, and that allows us to sort of stay inside these difficult moments. Do you have a, do you have a thank you because for us? I have a story that may feel very small and petty, but it really made an impact on me, which was I was calling my mobile carrier, T-Mobile, to complain about something, something that had been done to to me. My daughter was traveling overseas and somehow her international pass hadn't worked properly. And I literally had worked myself up to like a lather, getting ready, you know, waiting for the, when they call you back in 13 minutes. And I start spewing my story. And the the person on the other end just said, absolutely, we're going to take care of that immediately. Give me one minute, I'll solve it. And I, I almost kept going because I had so much so it was kind of so it turned from a like I actually hung up the phone kind of like I, I didn't even say all the things I was angry about but it was a thank you because they had they deflated my agitation and anger so quickly and it totally turned the conversation so I'll give a shout out to T-Mobile which has done that for me on a couple occasions and uh, wow. it makes a huge difference I ended up feeling glowy and warm about them when I had started being all agitated and I'm not sure I'm keeping this carry I don't think T-Mobile has ever gotten a shout out on the podcast. So I think that's, that's <laughs> it just seems to me people complaining about Milton Friedman. That's kind of what the podcast has been lately. But see, I got that. I'm bring, in. Bring in, I'm bringing the level right, right down. Yeah. <laughs> the book is called The Micro uh, Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, thanks for being on the pod. 
Thanks, Thank Kelly. So much. Great talking to you, and I'm glad we laughed, as always. <laughs> of course. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive